Thank you again, David. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would know uh, you as someone who has um, come down to us. Um, that you're not simply a God that uh, um, looks down upon us, but you came to us. And you didn't just come to be with us, uh, you came to rescue us. Um, so there are some here uh, today that we just, um, we give thanks for rescuing us. Um, and there's others here who um, I know need to be rescued. Uh, perhaps today, uh, perhaps something they're going through, uh, maybe a challenge this week. Maybe it's a challenging Mother's Day. So we give you thanks, and also we, we call on you, we, we beseech you um, to help us to know your rescue and know your power and, and know your goodness and know that not only have you given us Jesus, but you've given us um, his body, which is called the church. And even in the midst of tremendous brokenness, uh, our sin, uh, you infuse us with your Holy Spirit, and we're to be... Uh, a family, uh, a real family, a true family, a family that's greater than our individual families and our earthly families, but that will be united um, both here on earth and completely uh, in eternity. I pray that we keep moving towards that. I thank you for this family. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you all have your Bibles, would you turn with me to First uh, Timothy? We're going through First uh, Timothy with... Uh, Really a, um, a quick kind of three-week series that we are calling As We Go. Uh, as we go in our lives, as we go into the summer, as we go into our, uh, our future home, our permanent home. So First Timothy, and I'm going to do something different today. I'm not reading a set passage. We're going to have a lot of verses, and uh, most of those are going to come on the screen except for one. And you'll probably see why that one doesn't go on the screen. But um, anyway, as we go, last week I talked about as we go as individuals. And the question was, what makes a strong Christian? And today the focus is on a family. Uh, as we go as a family, both as a church family and as individual families. And so the questions that I kind of want to throw out to think about today are, first, what does a Christian family look like? Like, What's a Christian family supposed to be? If y'all are here, husbands, wives, and you say, well, I, I want to follow Christ, and I want to be part of a church, well, then what does your family, what's that supposed to look like? And then also, what does a church family look like? I mean, we kind of throw that word out a lot, honestly, um, and, and we mean it. But like, hey, we're a family, you know, and, and we, we love one another, and, but what does that mean? What does that look like? Does it just mean, hey, we're just going to love and, and be mushy-gushy and all, you know, all in the family? Well, yeah, kind of. But does that also mean that we, uh, we need to challenge one another? Um, does it mean that we, we might need to correct one another every now and then? Do y'all, maybe, maybe you think like, no, no, that doesn't happen in the church. That may happen in an individual family, but not in a, in a church family. Um, what, what is a church family supposed to be and do? Because we throw it out there 24-7. I do. Jill does. Uh, Chris, everybody kind of talks that lingo. It's become part of the verbiage at Bellwether. And we want to be that. So what is it? What are we to be? Uh, I told you all last week, the reason uh, I'm looking at 1 Timothy is it is uh, it's a very practical letter that Paul wrote to a pastor about how churches should function. 
And so I'd encourage y'all, we're kind of hitting bits and pieces over the next three weeks. I'd love for y'all to just read it. I mean, and it, it talks, as we're going to see today, some like very highly like practical, nitty-gritty stuff. So I hope you read it. But there is an intro to this, um, to this book, and I read part of it last week. Let me just read it to you again about being a church family. It says, um, this letter to 1 Timothy, uh, it concerns things like the role of women in the congregation, behavior of pastors, issues of church authority. Here are writings of a church attempting to move out in mission into a pagan world. And by the way, the world today is still pagan. That's another sermon. But anyway, at a time when the church was fighting for its life, and we're still fighting for its life, it fought not by throwing open its doors to all opinions and lifestyles, which the world would tell us to do, but by patient, keyword there, patient, intentional, keyword there, intentional, formation of Christians who are willing to be part of a community that looks different. Um, that's what we're trying to grow here. Uh, a community, even a family, uh, that looks different. And the world would tell us otherwise, in the buck, even in the buckle of the Bible belt, uh, to accept all opinions, lifestyles, and talking about family today, it would be very easy to say there is a full frontal assault on like traditional family. I mean, I was, uh, I was reading an article with a movie star uh, the other, this weekend, I like movies and stuff, and he didn't even want to call his spouse, who happened to be a wife, okay, a, a woman, um, but he didn't even want to call her a spouse or a wife. He's like, this is my partner, because now it's all, you know, partners, you know, you know what I'm saying. And so there's really, you know, the ideas that we have, husband or wife or, you know, a family, or they're being attacked. Or let's maybe an easier word would be redefined. People want to redefine that. So what should we do as a church? I mean, should we just, you know, go all out, you know, frontal, like, no, you know, just like rally and rebel and no, that's, you know. And, and hey, some people want to do that. And maybe sometimes we need to do that. Or do we want to say, hey, we want to show something different to the world. And we need to show a different community, a different family. We need to show that families within this family look different and commit to a different way of life or lifestyle. That's what I believe. But, but how do we do that? Like I said, 1 Timothy gives us some, uh, some very good advice, practical advice. So looking at 1 Timothy, I want to start and throw out 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 8, okay? Should be up on screen. If it's not, just bear with me. But 1 Timothy 2, 8, this is talking to men, men in the church, men in the local body. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Uh, pray. Men pray. I hit on this last week about prayer, and I hit on that, you know, we are wonderful at visiting, and, and so we're wonderful at, at saying what we want to say, or maybe not knowing what to say, but saying something anyway, and we're not great at praying. And, and some of you are like, no, I'm, I'm great at praying. Well, if you think you're great at praying, I don't, we need to talk about humility. But that's another thing. But I, I saw this one Wednesday night, and this is, it's no biggie, but I'm just like, it, it really convicted me, and again, Joseph and I talk about this a lot. I asked everybody, our first night at service, I said, we want to visit, we want to love on each other, let's do that. And then I said, let's just take 30 minutes and go room to room and pray. And guess what happened? We, we broke. And a lot of people just kept on visiting, you know. 
And, and that's, that's great, man. We're all about visiting. And that's not, don't hear me as that's like knocking on us because I'm a better visitor than a prayer. And some of them are like, well, how do I pray? I mean, how do I like, you know what I mean, kneel down or, you know. I mean, praying sometimes, like we want to have Christ, but let's be real. Like we don't want to like look like holy rollers, you know. I mean, you know, status and, and the way we look is, is, is big time stuff to us. And so a lot of times visiting is um, a lot more easy and it is for me, okay? So just, just go in there. So I think if you hear me talking about prayer a lot, like over the next 10 years, it's because we need to cultivate a body of prayer and people that will just like kneel down in a second. Like I don't care how I look. I don't, I don't care. I'll, I'll hit my knees and I'll pray. I'll pray for this body. I'll pray for the world. But then this, va- this verse, and the reason I wanted to talk about it, it's a different type of prayer. Man, and this is some challenging stuff. It says the men... Pray without anger or argument. Actually, some translations, argument, um, the word resentment is substituted instead of argument. And here's what I'm talking about. Um, men, you know, we're, we're wired that we're competitors naturally. And human nature is it that we're going we're gonna to bump heads with one another and we're going to compete. And so maybe there's, there's fallout with folks in your life. Or, or maybe you get angry at other people, or worst case scenario, and probably all of us have ha- had this happen at one point or another, we get stabbed in the back, and someone manipulates us, or someone abuses us, or something, and can we pray without anger or argument about that person? Can we? We can't in the flesh. I don't think we can. We can by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you, you could do this. I mean, you can pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or argument. And so what I want to challenge us about as men to pray without anger, without argument, without resentment. Matthew 5, 23, 24, it's not going to be on the screen, but Jesus says, when you are praying, and if someone comes into your mind that basically like you need to make up with, run to that person and make condolences with them so it'll be okay and your prayers will be heard, Jesus says. As in, like, if there's anger and resentment just festering in you, there's these things that will block prayers and that will stifle a life of prayer. So my question for myself, for all of us, is could we, you know, really and truly say, hey, blankety-blank person uh, that maybe manipulated me or or cheated me or maybe cheated on my family or, or something, can I love them? Paul's answer, my answer would be yes. Say, I love that person in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to keep working to put my flesh out of it. And I'm going to love them in Jesus. And I'm going to pray for them in Jesus. And I'm going to love them by the Holy Spirit. Power of prayer. Without anger. Without resentment. Without argument. Pray in those prayers. Okay. Moving forward, verse 9. You know, I wonder, am I going to do this passage or not? And, and yeah, I am. So um, this is fun stuff. So let's just let's just get down to it. Verse nine through verse fifteen. Not up on the um, not up on the screen. So know where this is in your Bible. A very much talked about passage in the Bible. Women, women. Verse nine. Paul says also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided. Or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. But with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman 
Learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Some of you may be thinking, man, are you? this is Mother's Day. Are you just like a glutton for punishment? And I would respond, yes, yes, I actually like pain. Um, I planted a church. I, I do. There's something masochistic. I like pain. Um, but I really like, and y'all have seen this, I love taking um, controversial, very challenging passage in Scripture and just hitting them. And, um, and you get to hear what I think, and maybe you don't care or flip what I think, um, but at least it's looking in Scripture and praying about it and seeing how it connects with our local body. So this is about, yeah, the role of a woman in the local church. You know, what is that? There are a couple schools of thought on this passage. And again, the reason I'm on the screen, I want you to know where it is in your Bible um, because this is thrown out a lot. A um, couple schools of thought. First, though, very clearly, the, the dress deal. You know, like, don't, you know, you know... You know, don't dress where, like, you know, I, I think Paul's really saying, don't let the women dress where all these men are just lusting after them. Because, uh, like, lust is a real deal gig for men, men different than women. You might say, well, not all women. But anyway, not going there. But, you know, it's like the percentages are a little different on the man side. And, and amen. And I think Paul's saying, like, you know, Timothy, man, you know, counsel these women to, like, you know, kind of be modest because if they're modest, maybe the lust won't rise and maybe there'll be less affairs in the church, which would be a good thing for every church, okay? So he's hitting that first. But also, and this ties into, um, he goes on about let them learn in silence with full submission. You've got to understand the context, too. Like, all verses in the Bible, um, I mean, you can hit a verse, but to learn Scripture and to learn your Bible, you've got to think about what's going on, what's, what's the backstory. And the backstory here is he's writing to Timothy, a church in Ephesus, okay? It's not Ephesians, but Ephesus. And there was a prostitute colony in Ephesus. And a lot of these prostitutes were becoming saved. And the church was growing. Uh, and it was a very hedonistic town. Um, really, a lot of the Greek Roman Empire world was. And so a lot of these prostitutes were, were coming to know Christ. But they were very, very, what we call like, you know, baby Christians. And... You know, Paul was writing to Timothy saying, you know, let them chill for a little bit and, and learn. And, uh, and by the way, you know, don't dress half naked. You know, that's, that's good. Because um, they've really been hanging around Ephesus naked, more or less, not just half naked. I mean, really, really, if you look at the Greek-Roman world. So he says that, and he says, don't let them teach. Now, another school of thought, though, to be fair with this passage, is that um, a lot of scholars say this is just like archaic language. And this is just out of date. This is just old and we don't want to trifle with that. Let's just forget this is ever in the Bible. And, you know, you know I just respectfully disagree. Um, I, I love God's word. I love learning it. I mean, I will fully say I'm hitting just the tip of the iceberg in my own life. But I believe that the things that are in the Bible are in there for a reason. And I also believe that, you know, like the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible through men, but the Holy Spirit, you know, it was his words. I believe he worked through the mind and through the pen and through the writing. And so the Holy Spirit has in here what he, what he wants to be in here. So 
So then what do we make out of it? Okay, like, there's context, but then there's also the argument of, let's just, you know, don't even, let's just pretend this is not even in there. And then the other one is, well, the Holy Spirit wrote it, so, so what, do we, what, do we, what do we make of it? Well, think about the role of women throughout church history. Um, you know, if you look at Christians and their relationship with women, they, um, they revered women more. Uh, they put women more in positions of leadership uh, than they had ever had throughout, throughout history. And in the Greek, Roman, and even in the Jewish world of Israel, women were just, just brushed to the side. And then we see Jesus and some of his, some of his best friendships and relationships, Mary and Martha. We know about them, you know, have a Mary heart in a Martha world or, or whatever. Maybe it's the inverse, I forget. But Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. The women who first saw Jesus when he rose from the dead. These were women. They were not men. That was for a reason. That to raise the role of women in society. The church, the capital C church of Jesus Christ, did more to raise the role of women than, than any other institution or organization ever. And you can quote me on that or you can debate me or, you know, but that is, that is the truth. Because you go into the local church in Acts and you see leaders in the church. People like Lydia in Acts 16. People like Priscilla. These were leaders in local churches that were starting. So, you know, I look at this and so here's, you know, here's kind of, this is the easiest way that I can explain it and as clear as I can explain it. And after this you may say, man, that's as clear as the Mississippi River. But anyway, I'm going to try. It's kind of like, you know, I got two hands here and... What's interesting is I write with my right hand and I throw uh, baseball or softball or football or whatever with my right hand. So my right hand is, is naturally dominant. But you know what's interesting, and you know, I love that we've got a lot of doctors here at Bellwether and that's great, but you know, one doctor, Dr. Larry Collins, you know, told me sometimes, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say this because some doctors may refute this. But anyway, he said sometimes, you know, one side of your body is like, is just, you know, is stronger than the other. So I write with my right hand, but actually my left side is literally stronger than my right side, which is kind of weird. I write and throw and um, even kick with my right foot. But this side of my physique, is, it's just like it's more, I don't know, they say more, you know, well-developed and one side usually is. Here's my point. I mean, I write and throw with my right hand, um, but I need my left hand. And actually, in softball, I really need a lot because I'm a left-handed hitter. I'm one of those weird dudes, throw right, hit left. That may make no sense, but anyway. And I really need this left hand. And actually, this side is stronger in a lot of ways than this side. So I look at it, there's a word called complementarian. And that is the word, I believe, and kind of live by women in the church, that there are complementary roles. That one is dominant, okay? But it's not the ultimate authority. Ultimate authority is God. But he created men and women. And I always say in the weddings that we've done, Genesis 2, 24, that the man would leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. They would be one flesh. Ephesians 5 is clear. The man would be the leader of the home. And, but yet, the woman has to complement the man. And there are things that the women will add and give and share and speak that, that we as men need and the church needs. So, you know, how does it look, you know, in the church? Well, here at Bellwether, 
I mean, we have women leading in just about every area. We've got a woman who's on senior staff. We've got women on our deacon leadership team. We've got women leading small groups. And, and I think that is totally great. There are some churches, in all honesty, that say women would have no leadership, you know, whatsoever. Uh, not on senior staff, not leading a group. So we are taking a, a complementarian position on that. But there's one area that, in all honesty, that I believe biblically women should not serve on. Okay? So love me or hate me, but here we go. And it is in the elders. We're going to break this down more next week in uh, 1 Timothy 3, where Paul goes into what is required of an elder. And so an elder is a small group of men who lead the church. And I say this, too, in preparatory for our church. We're going to be moving towards elder leadership towards the end of this year. And we're going to be selecting elders. Elders are above deacons. And so you're like, well, why can't women be on, on that? Well, first off, 1 Timothy 3, it says men are elders. Um, so just the Bible. Secondly, though, and I believe this is one of the reasons why in the Bible... Um, and some mentors have told me this. The elders of a church, and it should be a small number. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know a church that has more than, like, seven elders. And these are, like, mega churches, you know, 20,000, seven elders. Um, they say that the elders are supposed to be so close-knit that it is literally unhealthy for a woman, you know, who's not married to these men to be in that close, tight-knit circle. Capiche? You understand? You know, there, there's a I mean, so intimate socially, spiritually, praying together that it's hazardous that a woman be in there. Here, let me just clarify. Affairs are, are like real. Lust is real. The devil's real, and he comes in. And so the Bible says it's better elders will be men. So there you go. I mean, just my take. We can debate that. You can argue about that. Or I don't know. You may love that. I hope you do. I think it's, you know, again, there are some churches that just go all men all the time, every leadership position. I think Bellwether is, you know, we're taking this complementary position that women have great voices, great leadership, and they are leaders and want to be leaders. Now, moving on. Got through that again. I like pain, glutton for punishment. First Timothy 3, husbands, okay? It does talk about elders, but then it specifies this as the husband, that they should be a leader of the family. First Timothy 3, 4. He must manage his house well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own house, how can he take care of God's church. I ask you men um, with all man interest and passion and heart and soul, man, are, are you leading your families spiritually? Are you doing that? Uh, I know some of you are. I don't, I don't know if all of you are, but one way that we at Bellwether, I mean, we want to raise men who become spiritual leaders of their family. Well, what's a spiritual leader? Uh, just simply, you know, leading them in prayer, uh, eating meals together and leading them in prayer having them in church, um, seeing that your, your children, sons, daughters, you know, are, are raised in knowledge of Christ, as we say when we baptize infants, that one day they will choose for themselves to receive Christ into their life. Um, loving your wife, being obedient to the relationship, to the marriage, to the covenant of marriage, modeling that for our children, modeling spiritual leadership for our wives. There is an order in this deal. We're not even getting into Ephesians 5 or even Genesis. I just throw that out. Are you being the spiritual leader? If you are, man, we want to encourage you. We want to help you even more. And if you're not, we want to help you. Please. Man, I'm, 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 I'm begging you all now. If you don't feel like you're a spiritual leader, contact me. This is a passion of mine. This is, this is a big heart of mine that 
I just want to help you. So, but the Bible is clear, and the local church, we need men who are spiritual leaders. Going on to relationships within the church, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. It says, Do not speak harshly to an older man, but speak to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, to younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. I want to hit this because it, it's really talking about like how, we, how, how do we relate to one another in this body. So let's just take Bellwether. How, how, do, we, how do we speak? How do we act towards one another? And, and Paul is, again, this is a very practical book, very clear book, and he says, with absolute purity. And first he says, older men. I mean, we say wiser, but, you know, let's just be real. They're, they're young, and you get old. I'm getting old. You know, I, I got, you know, more gray hairs than my dad, you know, thankfully. Um, hopefully that, that may be wisdom, but I don't think it really is. Anyway, older men. How do we relate to them? Um, okay, uh, this man doesn't know I'm doing this, but anyway, I didn't see him before. And, uh, Boyd Kellum, love Boyd Kellum. And, you know, there are things in the life of our church that, like, we, we haven't always agreed on. But I love him, and I've even used this verse. I've said, man, this is clear. Never speak harshly. And, I, and I, I totally get that Mr. Boyd has seen more births and funerals than I have, and I, I value his wisdom. Not just him, but Larry Collins right there, and there are other wiser men in our congregation that, that I mean, I, this verse is seared into my mind, even with my dad. I mean, my dad and I have profound differences. I was like, you know, my dad is loving to death. He is a company man, you know, been with the same bank, you know, 40 plus years. Love him. But I'm like, man, you know, just take a little risk every now and then. And so sometimes we're just, we just don't see eye to eye. But, I, man, I love him. And, you know, I love this verse, actually, because it says, you know, the elder, the wiser, the older, you know, speak to him as fathers. So do we do that? Then the, the younger dudes, it says, as brother. So... He doesn't know I'm going to do this either, but J.J., you know, Joseph, um, you know, he's not just a, uh, a young whippersnapper. He's a young man, but he's younger than I am. And, you know, we talk. I don't, I don't talk to him like, you know, well, you know, I've got all this wisdom and knowledge and maturity. You know, learn under me. No. I mean, we talk as brothers, as brothers, as, as a brother would. And, you know, one thing, the reason I highlight this is the older and wiser and the younger, we need to grow in the life of our church. I mean, we've got a great core of, you know, young families. A lot of us are are peers. That's why I don't even address that relationship. But, you know, the older and the younger, we want to grow that. And I think one way is, you know, like, you know, the way we talk to each other, the way we relate to each other, you know, do do we ask for advice? Do we we listen to someone who has wisdom, even though we're like, you know, they're a different generation, or someone who's younger of a different generation? And we need to relate with one another, as, as Paul says. And the same, it says, with... Older women, all you women, younger women, with absolute purity. But Paul is stressing this. To be a church family, you don't just throw out church family. I mean, it takes, it takes like effort. Thinking about what you say, how we relate to one another. So, and then last, he goes into uh, verse, uh, verse 3, talking about widows. And I want to hit that today as Mother's Day because... There are also a lot of widows at this church. And, um, you know, we've had some widows here. We also have single moms here. Um, we have women who have lost children. And it's interesting, Paul really, I'm not going to read it all, but Paul stresses throughout chapter 5 about widows in the community. And I think what he's talking about, do we care about the most vulnerable? 
Do we, do we, because I think the church, any local church, I mean, if we're not caring for the most vulnerable, we're not a church. How we treat the most vulnerable is, um, should define us as a church. And we don't just come to be a status club, or we don't come just to be a social club, or we don't even just come to like get our Sunday, you know, game on, on Sunday morning. I mean, we need to care for vulnerable people in our communities. And so, you know, I have seen, you know, in our church family, I've seen single moms, you know, come and visit and, um, you know, and, and feel isolated sometimes. Um, I know widows can be lonely. And so, I mean, I'm just encouraging all of us, you know, think about the most vulnerable in our community, in our family, and, and love on them. Let's all love on them because I think it, a church is just it's defined by, by those the least, the last, the lost. And not that they're, you know, not that they're all in a mess if you're a widow or a single mom, but there's ways that we can help you. And I just, we got to do that. He, he says in verse 8, he says, whoever does not provide for relatives, especially family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And obviously he's talking about within our individual families and there may be people who are widows, there may be single moms, and... We need to provide for them. We need to provide for uh, today. If there's a mom who's lost her child that you know of, maybe you should give her a call. If there's a great aunt who is now a widow, maybe you should call them. You know, provide for those who are vulnerable. And then the last verse I want to highlight is verse uh, 13. Because this is talking about um, specifying women, but can be anybody. And he's talking about women who can be young widows, and they just start talking a lot. Gossip. Gossip. Verse 13, Paul says, Besides that, they learn to be idle, gadding. Use the word gadding. Gadding from house to house. They are not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. Um, man, gossip is uh, it's, it's cancer in the life of a church. I mean, it really is. And it's so prevalent. Uh, I mean, and not just like here, but in every church uh, because it's human nature. It's a sin thing. And, and we want to speak and we want to say. And we would rather say often than pray. And so, you know, my advice and encouragement to myself is that, you know, when there are things that we want to say and they, that maybe they're not edifying or maybe, you know, they're a subtle back slap or a, even a subtle stab in the back or it's just, I, I know if I tell this person, you know, I won't look like I'm gossiping, but this person will go to town. You know what I'm saying? You ever done that? Because we know the people who like run their mouth. And so I just need to plant a seed and they'll, they'll go off. Okay? Yeah, we know. Don't. Stop. Pray. Um, gossip, it, just, it harms the body. It harms individuals. It does plant seeds. Some of them false. But it doesn't matter if they're false or not. They bear fruit. And some of it's rotten fruit. And, and sometimes you just, just sit on it, pray about it. God will heal something that you want to say and, you know, you, you feel peace, you don't have to say it. But just in this verse, in this passage, to this letter, to this church, and, you know, could use other passages, but very clear against gossip. So I, I don't know if you follow what I say. You know, you may just come here and show up and everything, but I don't know, if, if, even if you're not, please don't gossip. Please try not to. It does not edify the body. Um, it does not edify the kingdom. And it brings division. So, you know, as a, you know, I started this, this message, you know, what does it mean to be a church family? Because 
Again, we, we, we throw this out all the time. We want to be the family. We want to be a family of one another. We want to be the family of Jesus. And that does mean visiting the hospital. And that does mean loving our neighbors. And that does mean, you know, man, just writing a note or an email saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. It means all that. But there are also things of how we relate to one another and how we relate to our individual families that matter a great deal to the body of Christ. And so we can either choose to walk in that way in our brokenness, and we will fail, but to continue walking, to be the family of Christ until Jesus comes, and to edify and encourage our individual families, our individual men to be the spiritual leaders of the home, our individual women, that the church is a place where you can be raised to be a leader here in teaching, in leading, in shepherding, and we want to do that. We need to do that, and to sometimes correct, like, man, you don't need to say that. Like, you don't need to go there. Like, that brings division into the body. I didn't even get into a church where, well, I don't, I'm not going to read the verse, but if you keep reading in 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, like, call out the unbeliever in front of everybody and cast them out. Then go there, and, and churches don't, but Paul did, and he encouraged Timothy to. There, it is a family, and there is some order to this. And I'm just, you know, I just want to ask, you know, how do you all want to be as a church, just, hey, let's just love one another and hang out and come every Sunday, blah, blah, blah. There, there are two... Let me be honest. There, there are two things... There are two things that I, that I feel very called to do as pastor. So this is just speaking from the heart, not knowing if I was going to say this. The first is I'm really convicted to raise the kingdom of Christ. Kingdom of Christ, both, both here locally and around the world. Um, and, and there's a force that, against, that is against that. Anytime you push for the kingdom to grow individually, in a family, globally, there's a real devil, and he just doesn't want the kingdom to grow. And a lot of times, he harms kingdom growth by, you know, you can call it division or gossip or, or whatever, and that's, that's real. But number one, I'm convicted with my life to grow the kingdom through the local church, through, through all y'all. So get ready. And number two, and my wife is right here with me, we do want to grow a united church family, a united body of Christ in a local church. And, you know, to be honest, over the last five years, uh, to do that, there have been some times that, that I've had to make, like, some hard decisions on, on relationships that, like, some of you have within the life of the body. And I own that. And I want to thank you all for, like, staying with Bellwether. But as pastor, we're going to be united, and, and we're going to grow in unity. And sometimes growth is it's like growing pains. But I'm convicted and committed to growing a, a united church body based on the tenets and the verses of Scripture, and that is a different reflection from anything that the world sees, but is a reflection of the church and first Jesus Christ and serving here and saying, you know, for, for whatever reason, the church was plan A and there's no plan B. It, it's not all, all about individual salvation. It is, but Jesus didn't just say, hey, get saved and, and you're good. See you in heaven. He said, get saved and be part of a local body that, that is messy and that has conflict and that has broken human beings, but I use this a lot, as broken pieces of glass by the power of the Holy Spirit. He fuses us together into this mosaic of something that is beautiful and full of grace. It's his church. Today, Mother's Day, I invite you... I want all of you to be a part of this church and intended to grow in where we're going. And we want to celebrate our mothers here and we want to celebrate that uh, 
perhaps are emotional for um, maybe they've lost a mother. Maybe they're not a mother yet. Uh, but this is very real. And so we want to be the family that maybe you're looking for or maybe you've never had. If nobody else does, I want to be that. So at least you got me. But I think you got a lot more folks here that want to be that, your family. We have white roses down here as you take communion. For all of our women here, pick up a white rose. And you know what's very interesting, the white rose, is that when I was growing up, we'd go to church. My mom, who's a florist, would always say, okay, if your mom's alive, wear a red rose. I don't have a red rose. Sorry, mom, I love you. And if your mom's not, wear a white rose. And dad would always wear a white rose. And you know, you think about that as like the white rose is death. But what's interesting about Easter is white symbolizes life. White is resurrection. And so the white rose is actually better than the red rose that we can know our mothers and their lives are living forever, eternally with Jesus. Amen? So when you pick up that white rose, man, that's a good rose. Be thankful for the white. Be thankful for the life. Be thankful for the resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for our women. The women who give of their time, of their, of their efforts, of their, their blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, for children of their own or children who they love, thank you. Dear Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you that, dear Lord, you're growing it and you've blessed it and you have provided. You have. You have, you have provided in so many ways uh, with people, with leaders, with places, with resources, with passion for your kingdom. And dear, I pray that would grow within us and that your kingdom would grow through us. And I pray we'd be your church. And I pray we'd, we'd hear these verses of Scripture and we'd, we'd see them and it would convict us to live as, as your body, as, as in the name of Jesus, in a different way, in a different way together. And so if there, there are things we need to repent of, we'd repent. And if there are things we need to pray for, we'd get on our knees and pray. And if there are things that are challenging, we'd be okay to say, hey, I'm challenged here. I'm, I'm not, you know, perfect. Body of Christ, church, help me out. And we like say that and believe that. Dear Lord, I do, and I know others do here. We want to grow a church that way. So thank you for your church. Thank you because it's your will. And no, I don't always get it, but it's your will. And we're committed and convicted to grow it. In Jesus' name, amen.